Would you please turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. In Philippians chapter 3 will be our text this morning, chiefly verses 12 through 14. The title of the message this morning is Passion, Pursuit, and the Prize. While the text of our message this morning will center on verses 12 through 14, I invite, with, I invite you to read along with me in starting in verse number 1. In verse number 1, the Apostle Paul is giving sort of his resume, his credentials, on, on if anybody could brag and boast about being a good person, the Apostle Paul says, I have, I have the list of reasons why I should be acceptable to God. I have a list of reasons why I am a good person. And yet all of it counts as nothing to God. And in its place, Jesus Christ is everything for me before God. That is, all of my credentials, all of my resume, all of my good things that were going for me are nothing in the sight of God. Jesus Christ is the sufficiency that I have before God. So follow along with me. In verse number 1, Philippians chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He says, don't put any confidence that you have what it takes to please God. Don't put, put any confidence in the most extreme and radical measures that you could take to your own body, your own behavior, your own lifestyle. Don't take any confidence in your good intentions and in your religion. Don't put any confidence in that when it comes to meriting God's favor. Verse number four. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He says, I, I even put myself before you that I'm an even better person than you. I have checked off all the boxes of what it would take to please God if man were to come up with the list. And he says, examine my life and find any fault in me. You will, you will, it will be a hard time for you to find any blame in me. I'm, I'm on many accounts better than you if man's version of doing right and righteousness is what qualifies one for favor in God. But he says, verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Those previous verses. Not having a righteousness that comes from the law. But that which comes, that righteousness that comes 
through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, the right standing before a God that comes only through faith in Jesus Christ, he says, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Let's pause there. Actually, I wanted you to read that with me. Would you just put your eyes up here on the screen? Let's read together as a congregation, verses 12 through 14. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Well, let's pray together as we enter into the word. Father, this morning, as we had just sung, Pour out your restraining love through the truth of the word of God. And Father, our prayer this morning is not a single heart would be left unchanged. That the the transformational truth of Jesus Christ, his saving grace at work effectively in the life of the believer. Father, let these truths encounter, confront, convict, and conform our hearts to Jesus Christ this morning. Father, we pray in faith and we want to listen in faith. Spirit of God, take the truth into our heart this morning. May we learn what it is to press on, to strain forward to all that is in Christ Jesus, who has become our Lord and Savior. Father, my heart's prayer, and I don't know the heart of anybody here this morning. My heart's prayer is there's someone who's listening this morning who hasn't settled their account before you by placing their faith in Jesus Christ alone through grace by faith alone in Jesus Christ. This morning, may they meet him and know him truly and become in a right standing before you today. Lord, I know that you will hear the sinner's prayer this morning if they come to you humbly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Notice how many times in these verses that the Apostle Paul speaks to the idea of pressing into something, pressing on, straining forward, pressing on. This is the posture of a growing believer, and this is to be our posture as we enter into this new year. We are leaning into this new year, but not just leaning in. We are trying to seize hold of, lay hold of. We're straining with every fiber of our being, of our spiritual attitude, our spiritual disposition into This great calling of Jesus Christ upon our lives. This is in in some ways related to the word passion. And I want to talk to you this morning, at least at the beginning, about passion. What is it called when a desire is burning deep in your heart? It's called passion. What is it called when a person is inspired to be loyal to another person or a cause? It's passion. What word would we use in the English language to describe what it is to dare to press on into an unknown area, we would use the word passion. And I think this word passion is something for us to consider in the few moments that we have. And to think on that word and idea with me, I invite you to do that. The dictionary 
defines the word passion in this way. Any powerful or compelling emotion or feeling, such as love or hate. Strong, amorous feeling or desire, like love and affection. An instance or experience of strong love. Or even a strong or extravagant fondness, enthusiasm, or desire for anything, like a passion for another person, or a passion for music, or a passion for for a football team. And I want to plant this thought in your mind this morning about how we seize hold of something more glorious than what we have today. We take hold of Christ by the means of our passion. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. God has wired us. He has wired people like you and me as creatures who are naturally infused with passion from the very get-go. When God breathed into Adam's lungs the life-giving breath, it ignited a fire in his soul that would become the pattern for every precious human being that God created. God gave Adam and Eve passion, and he gave you and I passion from the time we were born. It's no surprise that Adam's race is passionate, because God himself, who we reflect, we're image bearers, is a supremely passionate being. God created man to love God, to love himself as a central passion. And so all of us as image bearers have an innate passion, an inherent, a sort of a genetically engraved passion. We have a passion from the time we scream at the the time we are born until we have our last breath. Whether young or old, sick or well, male or female, rich or poor, successful or unsuccessful, outgoing or introvertish, we all have passions. Even the depressed person has passion. The passion flows in the currents of the innermost desires and the innermost beings of, of the inner workings of our hearts. It pumps through our veins with the very blood of life that, that courses through our bodies and our muscles and our organs. Passion is what makes us feel alive. And while some of us here in this room may be, may be wondering what is laying ahead of us in this new year, what, what areas we'll be directing our passion towards and investing our passions and interests in, with the uncertainty that lies ahead, what, what does lay ahead is something that no doubt we will enter into with flames of passion. Our passion is easily seen and desires whether it's good or bad. Our desires are the fruit of passion. Often our passion is directed towards things that are good, and sometimes passion is misdirected or directed towards things that are destructive and harmful to ourselves and others. Sadly, we invest our passions into things that tear down our lives and even the lives of others. Our passion has an intensity to it. It can explode and it can wane like a radio frequency. It can have modulations like the mountains and the peaks and the valleys. It can be cold at times and it can burn hot like volcanoes at other times. It's a fury, but it's always there. But our passion is a gift. Passion is a gift from God who has given us a color to life. Our gracious God has made it so that our life is not drab or dull even in the inward parts of our soul. Passion and desire are what sets us apart from his other wonderful creative acts and even his other created beings like animals. 
Passion is core to what makes us feel alive. As I was preparing to speak on this topic of passion, I interviewed a few people in my life that were around me. And I've interviewed those who I felt that expressed a, a deep, a great amount of passion. I asked questions uh, even of the mayor of Westerville about passion. I asked a lawyer about passion. I asked an entrepreneur. I asked other pastors. I asked recruiters, business recruiters. I asked leaders of civic organizations. And I asked them a few questions about passion. And I really learned a lot from them about hearing what their take on passion was. I loved hearing the story and the nature of of their idea of what passion is and, and what it is to live in a world full of passionate people. We live in a in a time, in an age when passion seems to be right out front. There's riots and demonstrations and sports things, and passion seems to scream through our devices. It seems to be loud on our streets. It seems to be to be um, high in volume on our on our radios and our podcasts. On a broad level, we see passion filling our world. On a micro level, we see passion moving the hands of of those who are around us who are shaping our lives and impacting us. There's no lack of display of passion in our world today. While our interests and desires can be good, God's desire for us is to keep our passion and love for him central. And every passion that is not leashed to the love of God, every passion that is not leashed to the love of God will be distracting in our lives. Every passion that is not tethered to and drawn from a love for God is a lesser thing. And it will never satisfy what passion drives us toward. We will always feel insecure and insignificant when we drive our God-given passion to the things of this world. Many times we see that passion is just really selfishness. It's seeking after significance. We might admire people for their drive and determination and boldness, but when it comes down to their passion, in all these things, it's very likely that the things that we admire about them is that really they are just purely selfish. They're even doing good things by their selfish motives of passion. One person I interviewed said, we are made for passionate lives, living lovingly for God's glory and lesser glories cannot ever satisfy our souls. They went on to say, when we attach our passion to these things, we learn over and over that they cannot satisfy. I couldn't agree more. Seeking after lesser things leads us to a passionless life. One that makes the aching of our soul feel like true suffering. Our suffering is because we are lacking. Lacking the experience of the love of God for us through Jesus Christ. There's three times, looking back into the broader part of our our passage here in Philippians 3, there's three times that Paul says that he counts worldly gain as loss for these reasons. Verse number 7, he says, I count all things for loss for the sake of Christ. In verse number 8, he says, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Later on in verse 8, he says, in order that I may gain Christ, he counts everything in this world, even the things most dear to him, the things that he had invested in, 
as loss comparatively for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ. When he says in, in this that he counts all these things as loss, like in verse 7, I, the, the, whatever gain I had, I counted. The word count is it's a mental act to count things. It's a, a mental act that involves resolving, deciding, purposing, judging. We do it all the time. We count things. Count things when we're squeezing the life out of our steering wheel and road rage, right? Counting the seconds till that red light turns green or till we can, we can outmaneuver the car. Or we're counting cards in our favorite game with the family around the table. We're counting the number of times that we have done something that we regret. But it's a, a decisive action. It's a mental activity, a, a decisive thing. We look on money. We count our money. We, in some ways, um, quantify our homes. We quantify our jobs and our performance and our achievements. We, in some ways, count our family who we're with, who we're not with, who we're getting along with, who we're not getting along with, who we're keeping in touch with, who we're out of touch with. We're counting our friends. We count on things for our future, like our retirement and our investments and our savings. We count on the number of days for vacation. I have a countdown app on my phone counting down towards certain milestones that I'm looking forward to and it goes second by second. I show it to Jennifer and she stresses out. But for me, it's a wonderful thing to see the, the time go down. We count things in our health like our cholesterol and our calories and all those sorts of things, our pounds. We count things in our lives like our, our year. I was about ready to change our calendar and our age. The Apostle Paul says, really, when he counts, when he thinks over all the areas of his life, he says, none of those numbers are what gives me peace in the end. None of those numbers are things that I'm striving towards, ultimately. They're not things that I ought to be passionate about. He says, these things are as rubbish compared to the value of knowing Jesus Christ. So how do we, like Paul, take this pattern into the new year? Of How, how do we say, let's pursue Christ in this new year? How, how do we do that? I mean, how do we, how do we, it sounds good, and it probably, if you're a Christian here today, you're saying, of course I want to press on towards Christ, but how do we do that? Well, the Apostle Paul gives us a pattern in his example in this way. Here's steps on how we can know Christ as he ought to be known in our lives. Number one, we claim Christ and pursuit of him as superior. We go ahead and we mark it out. Listen, just like we counted the things as loss, we determinatively in a mental activity, said all these things do not come close to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. So then the negative things that we counted, 
The positive thing we also count for, we make allocation for, we make an allotment for, we make an appointment for, we make an appointment to claim Jesus Christ and pursue him as superior. That if it doesn't glorify Christ, it doesn't belong. That's the measuring stick for the new, for the new year. As we move in through our life and our life goals, whether it's in relationships or in our, our career, our occupation, or our creative activities, in everything we say, if it doesn't help me pursue Jesus Christ, if it doesn't ultimately glorify him in the end, then it doesn't belong. And I'm saying top line is he is supreme. And we just go out and we put it out there. And we know that we're, there's times when we're, we're going to fail, but we at least have to mark it out, count it out. Just like we counted the things as lost, we also count what we have to gain. And it, that is the pursuit of Jesus Christ as, to be, as being superior and the pursuit itself as being superior than any other pursuits. We recognize and we regret and we repent of anything lesser. That is, as we come across things that have won the battle and have become superior and overriding to our pursuit of Jesus Christ, we repent of those things. But we, we, don't, just, we don't just laze in failure. We don't just say, well, Christ wasn't first today, so I'm not going to pursue him tomorrow. I'm such a failure. We, we regret and we repent. And the Apostle Paul says, I'm still pressing on. I'm, I'm straining with every part of, I'm not doing it perfectly. That's why it's going to take some effort. And so, thirdly, we recognize we're, there's a weakness in us. There's a weakness in us that is every other pursuit seems tantalizing convenient and comfortable. There's going to be vying pursuits. Very tangible, very reachable pursuits. They're going to vie for our attention. They're going to war for our passions. They're going to be very tempting. We have to recognize there's a weakness in us to gravitate towards that which seems easy. That which seems immediately pleasurable. That which seems so Convenient. Recognize that there is a weakness that we're going to give in to other pursuits. And so, fourthly, we pray to God. God, I need every part of your help to press on. Because it's not going to be in my flesh this is going to happen. Of my flesh, all I can manufacture is a Pharisee of the Pharisees. All I can manufacture is that I'm a persecutor of the church. I'm so zealous for God that I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrew, a tribe of the tribe of the flesh. God, I know I can't pursue you. Of the flesh, I'm totally insufficient to claim you as superior, to pursue you as supreme. God, you've got to help me. My flesh is weak. And so fifthly, go ahead and count all other treasure as rubbish. Rise up off your knees from saying, God, 
You, you need to be at the center of my life and the center of my pursuit. And keep calling everything else what it is. It's lesser. It's lesser. How can, how can we do this? How, how do we really work through this, the steps like Paul did on, on knowing Christ? He sets out such a wonderful pattern here. By the way, this, this pattern is it, right here. These steps, some are one through five. It's a steps one through five for every day. Just go walk through one through five every day. Start at number one again. Every day. Restart at number one throughout the day. But how, how do we do this? How can we possibly pursue Christ in such a way? I mean, it looks so ideal. And these steps look so practical. Well, the clue is it's in the passage. It's at the end of verse 14. It's going to have to be in Christ. All of this in knowing Christ is going to have to be by Christ. It's going to have to be by Christ. Lincoln Duncan, one of my favorite preachers, said this about this passage. In other words, the Christian, he pursues holiness in and from his union with Christ. How does the Holy Spirit change our hearts from the inside out? By uniting us to Jesus Christ so that all that is his becomes ours. How are we united to Jesus Christ? By faith. So the Holy Spirit causes us to trust in Christ. And as we trust in Christ, our sin is imputed to him. His righteousness is imputed to us. And the power of his resurrection, verse 10, begins to work in us doing what, he says. The power of the resurrection renovates us. He goes on to say, and the Apostle Paul is saying, I am dependent Upon that resurrection power that I have because I trusted in Christ and I'm united with him. I'm dependent upon that resurrection power changing me to make me more like the Lord Jesus Christ. You say resurrection power. Resurrection power reminds us that there had to be something that led into the resurrection. It was something very painful. A death. Pursuit for us sounds painful. The idea of pursuit conjures up images and ideas of discomfort, sacrifice, stress, extra effort, maybe even selflessness and self-sacrifice, self-abandonment. Pursuit doesn't sound like a really nice weekend word when we're trying to rest. And it doesn't sound like a really attractive word for us spiritually when we love our sin and sinning a lot and we love ourselves a lot. So pursuit doesn't really, the word pursuit doesn't really turn us on when we think of pursuing Christ, does it? The idea of passion, passion for Christ is something is more easily said than lived out, isn't it? Passion, the word passion actually comes from the idea of suffering. 
The word passion, as explained on and one historical website says this, the word passion can be traced back to its 5,000-year-old Proto-Indo-European base, Pi, P-E-I, which means hurt. In approximately 1175 A.D. then, the word was adopted from an old French to an old English word, meaning the suffering of Christ on the cross. As I understand it, in the early church or in the, before medieval times, the church was trying to come to a, a way to describe the pursuit of Jesus Christ for the atonement for our sin. And there wasn't an English word that was powerful enough to, uh, to claim for this. And so there was a Latin word that informed it. So when the Church of Christ sought to put a word on the intense drive and love that Jesus Christ has for those who will be his, they especially focused on the last week of Christ's life leading to his crucifixion. Like anyone who reads in the scriptures of the accounts of Christ's last days, they were struck with the revelation of a whole other level to God's loyalty and devotion to deliver the promised Messiah to redeem Adam's fallen race. When Christians looked at the final hours of the life of Christ, they chose to use the word passio, from which we get the word passion from. Since Jesus underwent the furthest extent of suffering, passion is most fitting to describe his story. Passion. Now with that word passion, again, is that really the word we want to use when we go into the new year when we say now passion means Suffering. You say, Pastor Jira, I, I didn't come to this morning's service to hear about suffering in the new year. I want to hear good news. I want to hear that the new year has no suffering. I, I've suffered enough last year. The word passio is heavy. It's heavy because it's not as light as we might think. It's not full of that like thrill and the burning and the blood sensation. We might think that passion is something lovely, easy, fun, pleasurable, or immediately rewarding. But this is far from the thinking of those who created the word for passion. When they read about Christ's final hours from the supper to the cross, they read of his excruciating pain. They read of his exhaustion and of his suffering. They read of his intense struggle to survive until the redemption work was completed. And so it was suffering that was at the core and the center of this idea, this word, in the word passion. There's an equally weighty other half of the word for passion that they folded into the meaning as well. Not only suffering will be folded into passio. But they folded into passion the idea of sacrifice and suffering to get to the desired end or goal. And it's another wonderful word when we consider what the Hissa has done for us. It was the suffering of Christ that won for us forgiveness. But his suffering was driven by another word that's tucked into passio. Submission. 
You say, Pastor Drury, now you've put a second word. It doesn't sound like a really great word for the new year. Those are two things that I don't want to do. None of us want to suffer, and none of us really enjoy submitting. It's hard for us to hear, just like we were listening with the word suffering. And I know that you would like for me to give you an easier word for the other half of the definition of suffering, of passion. And I wish I could do that. I wish I could change the way these things are. But on the other hand, I'm glad that I can't because God's wisdom in the crosswork of Christ is far beyond what we can know. Submission. Submission reminds us too much of suffering. And it's true. Submission in a fallen world to imperfect people does have a weight of suffering to it. So, so now we have it. We have suffering and submission. And that doesn't sound too cheerful of a definition for the word passion, does it? It doesn't sound too inspiring. When I say the word submission and suffering, that doesn't make fire in your blood. That doesn't make you feel like you want to go out and, and do something really awesome. But that's actually where we need to change our understanding of the word passion really fundamentally. Remember, we are created to have a central passion of glorifying God. Then if this one passion, like the Apostle Paul was describing in Philippians 3, is at the core of our lives, then it changes everything. Just like it describes the last hours of Jesus Christ. Christ suffered and Christ submitted to God as his central passion. There's no clearer time to understand this than in the garden on the night, just hours before Jesus would hang on the cross, when Christ poured out his heart before the Father, and he cried, not my will, but thine be done. Submission. And these words of surrender and suffering were meant for the renewal of our passion. These words of Christ's submission bring to us freedom. Christ's passion was to recreate to redeem, to restore, renew, to give us a true and everlasting and satisfying passion. Christ wasn't merely an example of passion for us. None of us could live up to that omnipotent and infinite passion that was lived out in those final hours of Christ before that dark time on the cross. Jesus is passion and Jesus won the passion for us, the passion that we ought to have. So I'm not asking you to work up a passion. God isn't asking you to work up a passion, to get yourself stirred up and excited and inspired by even this, pas- this passage that's an example and a pattern to us that the apostle lays out for us. By the power of the gospel of Christ, Jesus speaks life to our dispassionate hearts and he awakens true and godly passion in the believer's heart. All passion of people that has not been plunged into the redemption of Christ and centered upon God is a broken passion, a selfish passion, and it's a sinful passion. But all passion that is firstly submitted to the all-wise, all-powerful, all-loving God is crucified in Christ, and it is resurrected. That is, the believer's passion is resurrected, brought from death to life, Unto a power that changes us and eventually changes the world. And so passion is really about submitting to God what is already his to begin with. It is about the pain of letting go what is broken. 
passion is letting go of what it is broken. It is insufficient only to be rewarded with fullness and joy and significance and purpose and eternal life and eternal living. Another way in which the definition of passion is preserved in modern English is through the word passion fruit. More specifically, it's flower. And here's a a picture here of, maybe you've heard of passion fruit. How many of you have heard of passion fruit? We see it sometimes in some of our drink flavors these days, more than anything that we necessarily eat. But when the Europeans had colonized, had come to uh, South America in the 1600s, they used an indigenous flower as a mnemonic device to explain the gospel to native inhabitants. That is, they used a flower to illustrate and picture this Christian religion to the natives who had known nothing of Christ. The ten bottom petals represented the ten faithful apostles. They kind of consider Thomas to be not faithful and Judas, of course, to be a betrayer. The corona, the crown of thorns, and the five stamens, the five wounds of Christ, and the three stigmas, the three nails. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, the lobed leaves and tendrils of the plant were also said to represent the hands and scourges of Jesus' tortures. And so the flower, the bloom, is called a a passion flower. And it continues to be to this day. So when you drink or possibly eat passion fruit, it's the witness of the gospel brought to the natives in South America in the 1600s. And so really our passion, like that of the flower, our passion is our lives are in total submission to God's will like Jesus was at the cross. Lived out in total submission to God's will and our lives are meant to be a picture like the passion flower, the passion fruit, for others to behold the passion of Christ himself, that they might know of his true passion, that they might know of his suffering and his submission to win for them a satisfying pursuit. How do we walk into this year ahead? How do we seize hold of the unknown? Well, by the very same grace that has laid hold of us. Look in verse number 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. He says, admittedly, I'm broken and I'm weak. But I press on to make it my own. For what reason? This, by the way, will tell you if you're a Christian or not. Because a Christian will press on to make Christ his own. If you're not a Christian, if you're just going through the routine of stuff, if you're just doing stuff that's religious, then you have no desire, no inward drive, no passion to pursue Jesus Christ. But he says... I press on to make it my own for the reason that Christ Jesus has made me his own. So I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. So the Apostle Paul wants to get a hold of something. And the verb means to seize hold of. It means he's after something. And 
we ask, what are you running after, Paul? What are you laying hold of? What are you trying to own? What are you trying to possess? What are you trying to grasp? He says, I'm after that which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. You see, first, Christ laid hold of Paul. And Paul's turning around and saying, well, if you have a hold of me, then I want a hold, I want a hold of you. That's why I'm living, so I can hold on to you. I know you are holding on to me, but now my goal in my life is to lay hold of the reason. Why did you lay hold of me? That's why I'm going to live my life. What did he mean? The very thing. He says, I am pursuing the very thing that was the reason Christ pursued me. In other words, my goal in life is consistent with Christ's goal in my life. My goal in life is consistent with Christ's goal for my salvation. Jesus saved me for a purpose. That purpose of his in saving me has become my purpose. Why did Jesus save you? Becomes the reason why you pursue him. Well, why did Jesus save you? Well, we know there's motivations, like there's love, there's mercy. But for what reason, what purpose did Jesus save you? Because he wanted to make more people like him. He wanted to see his image replicated over and over to the praise of his glory. Christ saved you so he could have brothers, sisters who look just like him. So if that's the reason why you're saved, then that's the reason why you ought to live for him. That's what the Apostle Paul says. I press on to make it my own for the same reason why he has made me his own. The reason Christ redeemed me has become the goal of my life. If you are not desiring to be Christ-like, letting Christ do a work, a purifying a sanctifying work in your life, then this morning, there's bad news and there's good news. The bad news is you don't know Jesus Christ. He has never come into your life. But there's good news is that he purposes, he desires to make you into a new person so that old things are passed away and there is a completely clean slate where you become more like him. Our will becomes his will. My will is now his will, the Apostle Paul is saying. And what we should be saying, my will is now his will. I want from me what he wanted from me and saved me to accomplish. Do you want for yourself what God wants for you? By our God-given passion, we want to conform to every 
one of the purposes of our salvation. Jesus saved us so that we could look like him. God saved us so that we could look like his son. And we will look more and more like his son because he saved us. So we're in a lifelong pursuit of Christ-likeness. Passion, pursuit, and the prize. Let's pray.